from the Rose City in beautiful downtown Portland, Oregon, home of bikes, books, bridges, beards, food carts, startups, and indie coffee. Grab your dog, snatch your hammer and beer, leave your umbrella at home. Welcome to the Tiny House Podcast. Welcome, everybody. It's Tiny House Podcast. I'm Perry. Good morning. This is Michelle. And this is Mark Grimes. <laughs> and the sounds levels are okay? It's looking good to me. Okay, good. Uh, can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? <laughs> can you you, hear me did now? you know that that guy went to Sprint? I thought that was brilliant marketing. Did you really? Yeah. I didn't think so. I thought that was brilliant marketing. Uh, he also looks a little bit too much like the subway guy. Yeah. Which is not oh, good. Oh, that's creepy. Yeah, yeah that's, that's creepy. Yeah. It is true, though. Obviously, I none of these that. are sponsors. <laughs> <laughs> it's, that's true too so um wow we have a really interesting guest today uh two weekends ago i was at brighton bush hot springs spa and resort i think it's called and was really surprised i'd never been there before but was really surprised by the types of structures that they had there and they had everything from tiny cabins to yurts to uh cob structures and this beautiful lodge even their recycling facility was built like a tiny house it was mm. really beautiful and everything looked like it was made of reclaimed materials but it might be just that of everything's freaking old right <laughs> so i thought that it would be really interesting to have um someone from brighton bush hot springs who could talk with us about the structures and the architecture and why they decided to build the things that they build the way they do and maybe the resort in general because it is kind of this, it, it fits in with the tiny house sure. ethic. Did, did you know it was like that when you went there? I or? did not know it was like okay. that. Yeah, I honestly, I thought it was just going to be some open holes in the ground with hot water and a bunch of naked people running around. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully you got some of that though too. Yeah, there was some of that as well. <laughs> <laughs> so without further ado, I'd like to introduce Peter Moore, who I believe is the business development manager for Brighton Bush. Is that correct, Peter? Um, close. Uh, my my the, the title, such as it is, is uh, the business director. A business director. Okay. So you don't do any development. You just direct. Oh, listen, I do. The, I mean, uh, we'd have to have a working definition for development. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, I do a lot of that. And, um, and I also... Do a lot of meetings, a lot of thinking, some writing, and uh, sometimes I wash dishes. <laughs> nice. Now, so, the guy that I spoke with before I was introduced to you said that you are like the one of the original gang members of Brighton Bush. <laughs> like you go way back. Is that true? Yeah, I haven't really thought about it as a gang, but we could talk about that. Um, <laughs> yeah, I I came here in the spring of 1978, which is starting to feel like a a, a fairly long time ago. <laughs> I was. I had just turned 28. I'm 66 now, so it's been a labor of love for uh, almost 40 years. You've been there that entire time. I've been involved with the place one way or another that entire time. Uh, I've been the business director for 12 and a half years in this current role. Um, for years, a lot of years before that, I was the, the uh, uh, director of marketing, um, and. Back in the late 70s, I was one of the, you might say, founders of the current, of, of, of the current um, co-op uh, and, and helped to, to develop this, this co-op. So, um, but in your intro, you, you talked about the buildings and you thought these are either recycled, reclaimed, reused materials, or maybe they're, they're just that old. That, that recycling center that you saw, it's all hand-split cedar and, uh, you know, and, and the... And, and it goes back to the 1880s. 
Um, it was one of the original buildings back wow. back more than a century ago. So yeah, yeah. But in the current iteration of what it is now, in the, yeah, I, I, I came in at the beginning of that. Wow. So the the, the recycling building um, with the split cedar that that was there originally. Oh yeah, yeah. That goes back to the eighteen hundreds. So so tell me about the um. The genesis of this, well, first of all, for the for the listeners, because anyone coming to Oregon who listens to this show would, I think, would find this place really beautiful and welcoming. So, so why don't you talk a little bit about what Brighton Bush is, and then we'll get to the structures. Okay, so, um, well, what what is it? Uh, that, that's a short question with a long answer, but we're on air here, so uh, I'll just be brief. Um, it's a retreat and conference. Our, our name is Brighton Bush Hot Springs Retreat and Conference Center. Um, and we um, are, you might say, uh, and it, it's a place where people come for all kinds of purposes, but always good purposes. That's what I find out, you know, in just um, talking with the guests and also with people who are attracted to come and live and work here. Um, about 50% of, our, of the people who visit visit for their own reasons, like you, you, Perry, you came a couple of weeks ago, um, for your own reasons. I don't know whether you came alone or with a friend. I came alone, uh, Whatever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so you, you had an experience for a day or two, or whatever, time you were there, and um, which included, we serve three organic vegetarian meals per day, breakfast, lunch, dinner. That's pretty conventional, although we source our foods from organic farmers um, you know, and local and regional for the most part. So we have an ethic about that. Um, we're off the grid. Brighton Bush has always been off the grid. And what that means is that no electricity, no heat, no um, emergency services unless it's a, a true emergency. In the, you know, they don't plow the road. So we, we are our own fire department. We make our own electricity from the river. We make our heat from the hot springs that naturally occur here. It's a geothermally active loc- location. In fact, it's the second most prolific geothermal uh, uh, place in all of Oregon, and the the most by far in the in in the Oregon Cascades. Um, so we're we're on our own here, um, and uh, and we make as I say, we make all of our utilities. We maintain all of our structures. Some of the structures go back more than hundred years. Um, and then, uh, as you said in your intro, we've also built a number of structures, and we build with design ethics. And I could go on with that, but but that's that's a little bit. Um, one more thing I would say is um, about fifty percent of people who come here come here for their own reasons, as you did a couple of weeks ago. Um, always good reasons we find, and about fifty percent of people come to the workshops, and retreats, conferences, and other events that we host here or or um, hold here. So we're an alternative, you might say, education in, in, uh, institution as well um, with all of these various uh, uh, events that we that, that we hold at this facility. Okay, great. So so these these buildings that you've talked that we've talked a little bit about, let's let's go straight into that. So some of the buildings you have said have been there at least one has been there since the 1800s. What about, well, I guess first talk about how many buildings there are, what's the, what's the nature of them, like are, there, are they all cabins, what's the lodge like, that kind of thing. And then um, yeah. about the architecture itself. Okay, um, well, there's, there are, there's well over 100 buildings on the property. 
when we first bought the old resort, it was actually a ghost town. It was a ghost resort. But the history of Brighton Bush is, is you know, phenomenal when you actually get into it. Going back to the 1800s and actually going back thousands of years because it was a Native American um, village site. And um, it wasn't just one tribe. There were many tribes. They came from the east, the west. And there was a lot of trading, a lot of economic activity. You know, people from the east side trading giant hunks of obsidian to people from the west side of the slopes of the Cascades who might be trading beautiful shell beads, you know, things that people, you know, from the deserts or, the, or, or you know, on the east side of the Pacific Crest would never see that kind of thing. So this place, in terms of human habitation and all that, goes back thousands of years. Um, but in the 1800s, pioneers, you might say, uh, the early white settlers um, found out about it and... Um, and, and began coming up. One thing that's interesting culturally, um, and then I'll get into the buildings, but is that whether, whether it's Native American people going back thousands of years or whether it's European Americans, you know, um, coming here, everybody treats Hot Springs as a, as a different kind of a place to meet, greet, heal, celebrate. And so people got along here at the Hot Springs in a way that they never got along you know, down there in the valleys where, where there were all this contestation about who owns the land and, and all of that. So in any case, buildings started to be built here in the, 18, in the late 1800s. And you saw, you referenced one of those. Um, that's the oldest building actually on site. Um, in the 1920s, um, there was a huge building uh, 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 spree, you might say, um, where a person with a, um, he had a dream and, you know, he, he had a, uh, short, simple and elegant business plan, which was, um, he knew that people would spend money no matter whether they were rich or poor. Of course, this is the roaring twenties when everybody thought they could get rich. Um, and, uh, you know, it was the roar, they call it the roaring twenties for a very good reason. But anyway, he built, oh, nearly a hundred buildings, um, and um, his father had invented the ice cream cone. So um, he had a lot of ice cream cone money uh, because that was a really popular thing in, in American culture 100 years ago. Um, and so he built a lot of buildings, including this, this beautiful lodge, which is uh, several stories tall, you know, and, um, and very, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's a big structure. It's one of the last standing old lodges of the, of the you might say, of the West. Most of them have burned down, but this one never did, and that's a great thing. Um, and so you saw the lodge, um, and uh, and then all these cabins. You reference cabin cabins, small cabins. You know, maybe um, you know, maybe fifteen feet by twenty or twenty-five feet. You know, just small little cabins that that were built. There's something like forty-two of them on one side of the river, and another about thirty or forty cabins on the other side of the river. Um, and the river bisects this this little community, and then there, there are these other little outbuildings. So, uh, the original design was very um, we call it rustic. This is not a five star resort; it's more like one star. Um, but we're um, but we 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 hold that with pride. We we uh, maintain those buildings. We maintain them in their original uh, ways. We don't. Um, we haven't upgraded them except to add electricity 
so that people can plug in, uh, you know, little things and, and uh, heat, which comes from the hot springs um, and, uh, and like that and, and water. I mean, we've done the basic utilities, but otherwise these, these structures are much the same as they were 80, 90 years ago when they were built. Um, and then on top of that, you know, during our last 38 years or 39 years, actually, 39 and a half years since we first took possession of the land in 1977, um, we have built our own set of structures. And you reference Cobb, um, there's uh, Straw Bale. Um, we have built um, with other, for, uh, other forms, uh, Rostra is another uh, building form that we've used for one of the largest structures on property. Um, and we could talk about what those, those things are. Um, but overall, we, we have built and we continue to build um, with an ethic towards, you know, what are the materials we're using, uh, how environmentally uh, uh, sustainable is it to produce those materials and move those materials to our site, uh, how, uh, how sustainable are those building materials over time to maintain them, because we're we're at a fairly high elevation and we have to produce all of our utilities and we have to maintain all these structures. You know, we, we want to build structures to last and, uh, and be comfortable, etc. What are the, what are the heat retaining uh, capacities of those, of, of these structures, of the materials that we use, because it can get bitterly cold in the winter and we're on our own up here. So, you know, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll just leave it at that. We, we, we try to build with consciousness and we try to maintain or we do maintain with as much consciousness as, as we can. So the, the, um, so these structures have been around a while, but you have this, this new community that has agreed to, to kind of maintain it in this particular way. Can you tell us any stories about how that community formed? Um, because there's a, lot of, there's a lot of tiny houses. Are you familiar with the tiny house movement? Oh yeah. Okay. So there's that, a, there's a lot of there's a lot of tiny houses out there who are looking to build their own communities now. And so you guys have are I would argue is pro- probably one of the oldest tiny house communities in the well, in the country maybe. That is true and we have had um I won't call them arguments uh but we've had debates with the uh Marion County Public Works Department, Marion County Building Inspections, uh, you know, and we're we're moving inexorably and we're not the only ones you just read but we're moving towards the legitimization of tiny homes not just for personal residential use but also commercially um, we're not there yet um, because the um, the codes require certain amount of square footage and and certain other amenities but the codes are made I mean code codes, whether it's the universal, you know, the, the building code, unified building code, or various codes of various counties, which they, they do vary county by county. But um, codes are originally set up um, set up to protect human health and safety. I had one um, code uh, inspector once tell me about 30 years ago or 35 years ago that every code on the books is based on um, is based on uh, uh, somebody dying of something or being injured by something. So, um, so we, so they put it. They they, make, they pass a new law every every time somebody 
dies or gets injured because of a bad building practice. So we have 10,000 laws, 10,000 codes. And by and large, you know, they all make sense. But a lot of them have also been lobbied by by lobbying groups that want you to use more of their product or want you to use those kinds of contractors. And we're, we're quite aware of those kinds of uh, influences in the code structure. I don't want to digress too much, but when working with the people who've developed or have to maintain and inspect for these codes, um, and we're talking about the building inspection uh, areas you know, of, of uh, public works departments throughout the state or throughout the country, um, we're lobbying to, to say, hey, tiny homes are here to stay. People want to be able to live the way they want to live and maybe becoming downwardly mobile. Maybe that's just as good or maybe even better as, uh, as what we've been arguing you know, for a lot of years you know, for people who want to be upwardly mobile and increase the square footage um, of their homes and of their bathrooms and their kitchens and their, you know, uh, uh, it's it's okay for people to be able to choose another way and a more sustainable way based on their understanding of what's happening with the world and 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 with and and, and what is sustainability. So anyway, we're having those debates and sometimes arguments with our own county and our own code developers. You know, uh, Marion County uh, Planning Department, Marion County Public Works, and so on. Um, and I'm, I'm convinced that, that tiny homes, tiny houses, uh, are going to be legitimized for both residential and for commercial uses. And we're, we're doing that work. That's all behind the scenes. But, but yeah, we live in tiny homes. Most of us live in tiny little cabins that don't have even running water or flush toilets or, or uh, you know, showers, any of that kind of thing. And so we, we have communal uh, bathing and toilet facilities for our own guests and for our own staff. Wait, wait, hang on a second there, Peter. Yeah. You just mentioned that you had communal bathing. I have a picture of of like you all sitting in the same bathtub, Scrubbing washing each other's, other's back. back. <laughs> uh, no, we're not. We're not quite there. Oh, yeah, sure, we are in the hot tub. See, that might happen, uh, uh, but only with you know with no soap. I mean, we don't introduce those kinds of things. No, we have uh, facilities in our community village. This is on the north side of the river. That's where the community lives. On the south side of the river, that's where our guests all stay. What's the difference? Not a lot. There are small houses, little cabins, on both sides of the river. So let's talk about the the community village on the north side of the river. We all live um, in something, there's there's 40 or more of of these cabins, um, small structures. Most of them do not have running water. Uh, as I say, flush toilets, kitchens, they don't have those. They're just small little cabins and people live in those. And then we have these um, community buildings that have showers and toilet facilities. You can close your door and have some privacy and that's good. Um, And then community kitchens where people will cook and clean and, you know, have, um, and, and people can come in there and cook their dinners or their breakfasts or their late night whatevers. Um, so that's how we live as a community. Most of us do not have those amenities that most Americans take for granted. Well, um, go ahead, Mike. Which which side of the river has the old Indian burial ground on it? We don't. Um, I wouldn't say we have an Indian burial ground. I would. I would. I would call it village sites. We so don't. It's not. There's no 
I mean, it's that old. Usually there's kind of rumors of hauntings and that kind of thing, too. Any, uh, any... I, I don't go in for... Um, I don't want to exaggerate claims. Anyway, we're not, we're not here to make myths or okay. whether it's urban myths or uh, suburban myths or non-urban myths. You know, anyway, um, we, we found many, many arrow points and, and other um, artifacts of the people who lived here for some thousands of years who, who, who were on this site when, you know, before the, before Lewis and Clark ever mm-hmm. came to Oregon. Um, but, uh, but we live here now. And there, are, we have all of these little buildings that we've been talking about, and and uh, and we also have very good relationships with the Native American tribes, the Confederated Tribes of the Grand Ronde on the west side of the crest, the Confederated Tribes of the Warm Springs Reservation on the east side of the crest. You bet, all these tribes were collected and put on these reservations. It's a terrible history, but uh, but they and they culturally speaking, they still claim Brighton Bush Hot Springs as a sacred place within their tribal traditions and and we have no problem with that we honor that but we're the ones who live here year-round and we have our business and we have our village and we have our somewhat tribal life as a community we're, we're pretty close i mean if you can imagine we live in these tiny little houses we share uh bathing and and kitchen facilities you know, in the ways that I just described, we're a neighborhood of, of, of almost, you know, almost a hundred people who live and work here or who have our domestic partners and our children who are born here and all that. So it's a village. Uh, we all know each other as neighbors, very close neighbors, because, hey, we're sharing these facilities together. But then you imagine everybody in your neighborhood or your apartment house or your, your cluster of tiny houses in our case we're also co-workers, so we know each other as co-workers as well as close neighbors. But then, oh, take a look. We're not just co-workers and close neighbors in tiny houses living close together. We're also co-owners we're of, of a worker-owned co-op. Yeah. So, so we have got relationships that are complicated to the third degree. Yeah. Neighbors, we're co-workers, we're co-owners who have to manage a business. Oh, we have to make business decisions together. We have to work together, and we have to, to and and you know we do not. If you think you have an opaque personal life, forget it. Everybody knows everything about everybody about every aspect of every. I mean, and it's great. <laughs> I'm sure there are some problems. Michelle has a question. <laughs> Michelle. <laughs> So I have a friend of mine that actually comes up there and teaches yoga um, mm-hmm. in exchange for a place to stay. She'll come up, I think, for, for either weeks or months at a time. And so so we've talked a lot about community. But um, so if I were to come there, I haven't been there yet. It's on my bucket list. So if I were to come visit there, what would my experience be like? So you've talked a lot about community um, and how everybody knows everybody. So I would kind of be an outsider. How do I, what type of experience or what type of uh uh, yeah, what type of experience would I have? That, that's a great question. Thank you. Um, we serve about 25,000 guests per year now, and, and um, that, that's a, 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 an amazement. Um, Wait a minute. So How many again? About 25,000 per year. 25,000 a year be divided wow. by 12 is yeah. a couple thousand a month? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And yeah. people for one day or two days. Perry was up here. He was one of those 25,000. Um, 
and um, and you know we could talk to Perry, but but I'll, I'll take a shot yeah. at it. Perry, tell me if I'm telling the truth or not. Um, we have really great guests. We have people come actually even from out of the country now and we're not a five-star resort we're like more like as i'd say we're a downwardly mobile you know but kind of a unique destination resort for people who love hot springs or for people who love um the idea of being off the grid that you they can't use their cell phones they can't text they can't go online and see how their um investment portfolio is doing um you know for the day or two or three or a week, whatever, that they're here. It's a different kind of an experience. It's, and, and so, um, but you meet the most fascinating people. If you are at all open and to meeting people that you didn't know before, you're going to meet some fascinating characters in the hot springs. I mean, the bathing facilities, these pools, what you call the holes in the ground, these are, we, we call them our, our, our hot, hot springs pools. And they're, they're very nice actually. Um, but they're natural hot springs water. There's a lot of it. There are various pools. There's also a steam sauna that can't be beat. We have people that come from Japan or Germany just to get into the steam sauna, this natural steam that's rising out of the ground with all these sort of gases. And it's not just a sulfur spring or a iron spring. There's, you know, there's uh, all kind, there's 25 different minerals in the various hot springs. So, you know. So how do I, how do I, uh, where do I eat? Do you have a, a restaurant yep. or a cafe um, sort we of facility? We have a big dining room in the old lodge, this historic lodge. Uh, so this, this big dining room, uh, we serve three meals a day. You'll hear a bell. It's kind of like monastic in a way. There's a bell that lets you know, oh, uh, dinner is going to happen in 15 minutes because I just heard the, the, the first bell. Then there's the second bell. Okay, dinner is being served and will be for the next hour and 15 minutes. Great. You'll come there. Um, you serve yourself. Uh, we serve these mega meals, uh, mega salads, blah, blah. You find a place to sit. You'll be sitting with different people um, or with somebody of your choice uh, inside or outside during the summer months. Um, uh, and so it's it's casual. Um but uh, I'd say that's an understatement. It's, it's all you can eat of, uh, of, of organic vegetarian cuisine. I call it, it's, a, it's a good scene. Um, so you meet interesting people, of course, when you and you know, and, and clothing optional bathing areas, you know, you're, you're going to see more of, of, of people than you ordinarily do see. In a, and, and, you know, that leads to very interesting conversations. Mm -hmm. um, there are, it's a family friendly place. This is not a. Um, just to say it like it is, it's not um, a, a sexual marketplace. We're not set up Aww. like that. We're, we're set up uh, uh, where we honor the dignity of every human being in whatever shape and size and age and, and color and, and diversity that they are. And, um, and so it's, it's about the dignity of the human, of the human experience and of, of the humans that are there having the experience. Right on. So you, you end up having really interesting conversations with really interesting people. So, Peter, I want to go back to the community. No offense to Michelle's question. That was a really good one. Thank um, you. But I want to go back to the community because I think that that you're operating under a level of extremism that tiny houses that are trying to build a community around their tiny house probably will never get to in the sense that you have this triple whammy of relationship going on where you're, you all are living together in these really rustic 
experience, minimalist experiences, but at the same time you're working together and at the same time you're all owning the place that you work at. How do you... Um, how do we do that? Yeah, I, it seemed you you said that it gets along fine, and I said uh, maybe not. Hundred people agreeing. Yeah, hundred people <laughs> agreeing. I can't imagine that going super agree. smooth. Yeah. yeah. So, um, tell, <laughs> it's a good question. Yeah. Um, I, I I in no way mean to imply that everybody is just so happy. It's a big group hug all the time. It's not. It's a democracy. It's it's a radical. It, or at least in some ways, at times, it, it feels like it, it's a messy democracy. It's not a cult. It's the opposite of a cult. It's an anti-cult. It's, it's, a, it's an experiment in messy democracy. Everybody's got to vote. And, uh, and we vote our consciences. We vote our biases. We, but, but we debate things. Uh, the first almost 10 years of our experience, we worked by consensus, and then we, we by consensus, we decided that we would never operate by consensus anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and that's when we things fell apart. We were driving ourselves mad um, <laughs> with political consensus. And so then uh, it went from there to, uh, uh, we, we try for consensus, and oftentimes we make it. But, but we are a democracy, and we work by principles. Um, and so you, we, we state the principle and that, you know, the overriding principle, and then we debate the issue based on the merits of the issue and we reference the principles. And of course, people have diff uh, competing principles and competing sets of merits. And then we vote. That's how we go. So give, um, so give us an example of a specific principle and the dynamic through which you figured it out i mean the, the, that's such a good perry question the but, human component <laughs> well yeah let's let's like what's the most recent like thing yeah. where there were two sides of a yeah. big issue and there was a bit of an argument yeah wow you want the most recent um well okay i'll just open up here i hadn't planned on yeah, there we <clears> go um <laughs> Uh, I, I could give you several examples. Oh, by the way, if you if you want to explore a little bit more, I have a recent article that I that I wrote that was published by Utney Reader. I don't know if you're familiar with Utney. Oh, yeah, yeah, we are. Um, so in the spring issue of Utney Reader, there's there's a an article written by me. It's called "My Intentional Community and the Law," and and so um, it's a fairly long article. It's over three thousand words, uh, where I discuss. Um, including housing issues and, and other issues uh, and our legal relationship with the man or with, uh, with authority figures and, and also within ourselves. So if, if you want to kind of explore that a little bit more, um, you, could, you could reference that article. Well, we wanna, just, yeah, we want to explore you, your experience right now. So okay, yes. And yeah, and, um, yeah I wasn't trying to, to, um, to uh, duck the question. I'm <laughs> saying that, that there's a lot of examples. Um, very recently, like in the last week and two, we uh, actually for the last few months, our marketing director, our director of marketing, events, and hospitality, uh, a brilliant man um, named Tom Robinson, who you met, Perry. Yeah, I met him, yeah. Um, Tom is retiring. He's 72 years old. He's been here for over 12 years. He's just an incredible guy, and, and, uh, and I love working with him. And it's time for him to move on into another uh, area of his life. So he's leaving. 
Uh, so we're we've been going through. We've had, had a director search committee operating for some months. We put out the call. We're looking for a new director of marketing, events, and hospitality. It's a major role here at Brighton Bush Hot Springs. We've been through all kinds of, uh, uh, and many people made application. They were all great. It, it's difficult to go through all those apps, to go through all the interview processes, to to uh, make a decision finally to offer up the two or three highest quality uh, qualified candidates to our board of directors. And I'm not on that board, um, but by the bylaws, I'm not allowed to be on the board within my role um, because we have checks and balances all over the place here, which gets to a previous question. But anyway, um, and so we, we, the two most highly qualified candidates that got through all of that, were offered up and the board interviewed both of them. One was from the inside. Uh, it's a person who's been here nearly a decade, a, really a wonderful person, highly qualified. And one was from the outside, also really a, 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 a beautiful, a wonderful person, highly qualified, but they have very different markers for what qualifies them to apply and be considered for that particular job. The board made a decision after, whew, and and um, and the community is at sea about that decision, and, you know, because it's um, it's it's contentious, and there were a lot of people who wanted the board to make the other decision, and a lot of people who wanted to make the board to, wanted to have the board make make the decision it did. How it's all going to work out, who knows? I'm not going to go into the personalities and all of that, but just. This is real life, and and um, and so the principles. Because you were asking, what are the principles? Um, the principles in that case, and they were competing principles. One of the principles is, hey, if somebody from the inside who's been working here for years, who's really shown up, and uh, you know, and and has done their job, and and it's you know, in an amazing way, um, for all these years. They have merit that, I mean, there's a merit, meritorious thing, you might say, or it's a meritocracy in that sense. Um, if they are competing for a position like this with a person who might be equally qualified, but who hasn't been working with Brighton Bush for those years, one would think, hey, let's choose the person from the inside. They've, they deserve it. They've been here for years. That's a good principle. Um, uh, here's a competing principle. Person who hasn't been here before, but has got an enormous set of skills uh, and, and life experience in the quote-unquote outside world or in what pe some people call the default society, the default culture. <laughs> default, it's, it's not a pejorative term, or at least not with me. But anyway, it's, it's what's going on outside of Brightbush. Once you lived here for a while, this becomes the whole world because you're living in a village with all those that triple whammy that you just talked about, mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, it becomes all-consuming for a lot of people. It's just, it just takes up your life, your social relationships, what happens at night, what happens by day, what, where, who you're, you're really in sync with, who you really aren't working very well with, all that stuff. Um, but then somebody from the outside comes with all of that, their life experience, and and people on the board might think, wow. In this case, um, Brightonbush would do very well to bring in all that direct experience and all those skills that have been developed, you know, outside of the Brightonbush environment. Let's 
let's augment Brighton Bush and all of it, what it, it is with all these new these new skills and life experiences. So that's, that's so a great principle. So a person who's coming in with all these great skills has to, according to how you described it, uh, if I may use this word, scale down their life to live basically in a place where there's no running water, no private bathroom, and no kitchen in their place. Is that right? right? Yeah, yeah. Scale down is a way that that could be taken a certain way. But, you know, there are people we, we were talking, you, you, you started this out with a, with a discussion of tiny homes. There are people who, who may be making, you know, a, a, a six-figure salary out there. Um, who are doing really great work? They're really intelligent. They've got they've got it, in, and they're looking at the sustainability of their life. They're looking at the products of of their work, and they're seeing those products of their intelligence, their integrity, their work, their their capacities. You know, but but those products of their work, whether it's the intellectual products of their work or the the physical, whatever, the physical and metaphysical product of their work. And they, and they might be saying, you know what, this is going to such and such a corporation or such and such a, a government agency or whatever. You know what? That's not what I want to do ultimately with my life. You know what? I'm looking for something else. I want to, I, I want to have more meaning uh, in my life uh, and, and with the outcomes of, of, of my of my productivity. Um, and they might look at a place like Brighton Bush Hot Springs and we don't pay six figures or anything like it. Uh, nothing like it. Um, we're, so you'd have to be actively downwardly mobile to even think about it. But, but you might, but, but you, or, or you might be looking, you know, to put it another way, you might be looking for a different kind of work and meaningful relationship with your work and social environment, and maybe a group of tiny homes up in the woods, off the grid, working for human health, safety, and and human consciousness. And and in if I, it, it may sound pretentious, but I, I don't mean it. So we're looking we're we're, we're looking to be active, um, active uh, 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 collaborators in in developing uh, in, in human consciousness moving forward human evolution you know we're we're looking to work for the human for 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 making the world a better place it's kind of utopian right interesting it's very you know, interesting some people are attracted to that mm-hmm. you made reference earlier to some of the advocacy um, work that you've done as far as zoning I believe at building codes and so forth. Um, that, of course, is one of the difficulties that us tiny housers have in, in developing communities is is having the, you know, having the government give us the nod of approval or making the decision to sort of live uh, under the radar and kind of hope we don't get busted. Um, would you uh, freely admit, I guess is probably the best term, to... Uh, having the luxury, shall we say, of grandfathered in. I mean, again, if you've if you've been around that long, um, you know these buildings have existed, like you said, just for you know I don't know hundred years plus, um, or the the certainly the community has. So, will you admit to the luxury of of being grandfathered into those issues? And um, again, specifically regarding zoning. Um, what can you do? What advice can you give and what can you do um, to help tiny housers um, specifically? Well, that is a, a great question. And yeah, uh, I, I would admit or confess to, you might say, the luxury of, of uh, having 
we bought this thing. When we went to the to the county, they said, you're not grandfathered in for anything. You're going to have to conform to every code that any other developer would have to wow. conform to um, in order to bring it up to um, – to a place where we'll allow you to open commercially. We said, well, okay, that's your starting position. Our starting position is um, we're working with existing buildings. So we, we, we anything we do to those buildings, um, we, you know, if say we want to bring electricity, we want to bring plumbing uh, um, to the building, whatever. We, um, sure, we will, any, anything new, we will um, get a permit, um, and by and large, we've done that, uh, but not in every case, just to be honest with you. Um, you know, we, but we've worked and it's been a, it's, it, it hasn't always been, um, it hasn't always been really benign, this relationship with the, with the powers that be. We go in there, um, you know, I'll, I'll just tell you another story. We, we developed our, uh, we had an old 15,000 gallon reservoir that was, that was built in 1928. 15,000 gallons, we use more, the, more, more water than that in a single day. Um, so we're pumping all the time. We, now, yes, we have to chlorinate the water, and, and it has to be according to the requirements that any other municipality has to, has to create in terms of develop, uh, developing domestic water, potable water, so that you can, you can have water going through the, the taps and people can bathe in it or can shower in it or can drink it. We have to do that. Um, where we drink water, we, we, we have little filters to take the chlorine out because we don't want chlorinated water. So first we have to chlorinate it, then we have to dechlorinate it. That's our gig. But to put it into a 15,000-gallon reservoir doesn't make a lot of sense, and there's all kinds of reasons. So we said, okay, we want to build a reservoir that actually works for what we're doing. We came up with a design for a 186,000-gallon reservoir. That's a lot bigger than a 15K-gallon reservoir. But then they said, oh, you're not a municipality. The laws say that you, you have to, uh, non-municipalities have to have a single reservoir for, for uh, fire prevention and another individual reservoir for domestic water. You have to have two reservoirs. Municipalities can put it all in one single reservoir and do it that way. We say that doesn't make sense. They say that's the law. We say the law doesn't make sense and we're not going to accept that. They say you have to accept the law. That's, that's the way it is. Get used to it. We say take it to a higher authority. We 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 argue with them. We put it in front of them. Ultimately, they agreed that it didn't make sense, even though we're not a municipality, for what we're doing. And we wrestled it. It took us over a year. It took us about twenty twenty five thousand dollars more in engineering costs. But we wrestled it and and we've got a single reservoir with dual purpose as if we were a municipality and and that's where where that's at wow. I mean, and, and and you know that's a that's a real story um in terms of tiny houses I mean, the moral of this story for for getting to your question is don't take no for an answer Mm-hmm. Yeah, back. that's what I was, I was just going to circle back to that. So, yeah, so really, it's about educating the municipalities mm-hmm. and educating the people that either write the laws or enforce the laws, yes. um, questioning, uh, drawing attention to loopholes, questioning the logic, questioning the validity. Um, technology well, has come so far. So many of these laws yeah. are based on, you know, based on antiquated technology. Mm-hmm. So, um, I applaud your efforts in that regard. Or antiquated. Ideals. We had to go in front of Marion County 
um, the Marin County commissioners and go through public hearings for well over a year to change the zoning of a portion. We were on an old homestead that was homesteaded more than a century ago, um, you know, at the turn of the last century, you know, about 1900. And um, so there's a little piece of property that was zoned public, which is where all these hundred buildings are. But a majority of the, this old homestead was never was never zoned public. And so it was zoned timber conservation. That's the only zone that's allowed in our area of the forest. Mm. Um, we said we want to rezone it public because we have other uses. We want to make geothermally heated greenhouses. We want to grow organic foods. We want to put tiny houses up there on the highlands on an area of our property. They say you can't. It's TC. It's timber conservation. It's the it's state planning goals. These are state planning goals to keep all of the acres of this of 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 Oregon timber conservation because guess what that's what that's the economy we went in front of the commission and say that's insane we want to change the zoning they say well state planning goals are state planning goals you can't change that we said we challenged that and after over a year um, finally the commissioners said you know what you've made your case um, this went through Marion County planning it went through the uh, the whole zoning thing it went through and ultimately they the three commissioners, they're all Republicans. They're all for economic, you know, development, blah, blah. But uh, the head, the president of the commission said, you know what, you, you have made your case. And what you're doing at Brightonbush appears, this may be, you, you know, this is a Republican talking to us, you know, on, uh, on the record saying what, what you folks seem to be doing, you, you might be leading the way, pointing the direction of the future, which involves small houses and 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 people working together cooperatively more than, you know, these giant houses on a, on a tiny footprint of land, which has been what a lot of suburban development is looking like. So they they changed the zoning. It took us a lot of time and a lot of effort and and a lot of planning and and some money, but we just wouldn't take no for an answer. And and I think we can do that with different with not just state planning goals but with with um uh not so much municipality well it can be municipality but i'm thinking of of counties well congratulations that that's a fantastic story of how you guys prevailed and and it's it's almost like that republican um uh municipal leader commissioner commissioner presaged what's happening right now around the world with the tiny house movement i think so yeah it's pretty awesome there's something happening here and you know you're you're particularly interested in tiny homes tiny houses well we are too um obviously we live in tiny houses that were built in the 1920s for the most part Mm -hmm. that's that home that you that little cabin you were in was built in the 1920s um so uh but but we're building i mean we're we're going to prevail here um, in not just tiny homes, but also construction areas. We, we, we uh, approached the county public works and we said, we want to build with a product called Fastwall. Um, Fastwall, and I'm not going to go into it, we don't have the time, but... We're but almost out of time, is, actually. Yeah. yeah, so it's a sustainable thing. And they said, well, it's not, we don't allow anything to be built with that. We've never heard of it. In the end, they accepted it. Awesome. Well, Peter, it's been fantastic for me anyway, having you on the show and telling the stories about what's going on up there uh, and a wonderful place that you have. Thank you for being with us. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's it's been a pleasure talking with you. I'll stop by and say hey when I finally make it up there. You can put a face to the name. 
there's more to the answer uh, uh, than I gave uh, to your question. Awesome. <laughs> and tune in next week, uh, Tiny Housers. I think we're going to be, who are we talking with next week? Tracy Powell. There you go. Awesome. Tracy Powell, whoever that is. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Tracy. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll talk with you next week. See you on the flip side. See you, bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Tiny House Podcast. To find us online, go to tinyhousepodcast.com, where you will also find our show notes, if we remember to put them there. Our logo was designed by the amazing Carolyn Maine. Our website is hosted by the gang at Sightcast. Our theme music is by Oma Studio. Please go to iTunes and give us a five-star rating, or whatever. You tiny house-loving bastard. Tiny House Podcast is probably made in Portland, Oregon. Thank you.